Now will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 9. Book of Romans chapter 9, we'll begin to read in verse 30. We have been considering together some of the great themes of the Reformation. Two weeks ago we looked at the doctrine of justification by faith. Last week we considered together the great subject or the themes of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation from Romans 8 verse 30. And this morning I want to consider with you the five solas of the Reformation which I've called or put in together just in the simple title, Having Christ. So, verse 30 of Romans chapter 9 into chapter 10 through verse 17. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You'll notice that there are some... Uh, References to scriptures in the Old Testament. For example, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are great promises, aren't they? May God bless the reading of his word. Now let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning desiring that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and put these truths powerfully into our hearts and minds, that we might believe your Word. For we understand, Father, that you have said so clearly here in your Word that faith comes by hearing the Word. We pray that everyone here this morning may truly hear the Word of Christ. We thank you that we can look unto Jesus and live. And we desire to know the, the beauty and the glory and the wonder of that salvation that you've provided for us. 
So we thank you for your word. We desire that you would bless your word to our souls, that we would take what we hear, receive it, believe it, and live it out for your glory. We commit ourselves to you now and pray your blessing upon the preaching of your word. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. One of the very central themes of Paul's letter to the Romans is what we know as the gospel. In fact, he tells us, doesn't he, in chapter 1 and verse 16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel. And there's a reason why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, whether they are a Jew or whether they are a Gentile. And when he says it like that, it's because he knows that within the gospel, God has revealed a righteousness of his own, his own righteousness, so that our faith might latch on to the righteousness of God, so that from faith to faith, all who have come to understand and believe in this gospel might be righteous before him. So the gospel is central to the life of the Apostle Paul, to the preaching of the Apostle Paul. In fact, the gospel is central to your life as a Christian. Cannot be a Christian without the gospel. Cannot be a Christian without knowing the good news of Jesus. And so the Apostle has been unfolding really from the very beginning of the book of Romans and he does so all the way through to the end, the beautiful glory and the wonders of the good news of the gospel of which he is not ashamed. It is our prayer as a congregation, as Christians, as believers in this place, that all of us here might know the righteousness of God, might know what it means to be be in Christ to possess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to possess eternal life, which Jesus himself says is he's the one who gives it. And the apostle talks about things like believing, calling upon the name of the Lord. He talks about hearing. When he talks about those things, he's talking about hearing the word, believing the word that was preached, that was proclaimed. We read in our responsive reading from 2 Corinthians 4 that the Apostle says that we do not proclaim ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And isn't that the heart of the Gospel? Not just that Jesus was a man who lived long ago, but that Jesus is Lord, Lord of all, God over all, the Son of God. So at the very center then of of the Bible, of God's Word, is this Gospel that He has given to us and that we read about. But the Gospel is made up of promises. God has made promises to His people. He has made wonderful promises to His people. Those promises are found here in the Bible. But in particular, the Bible teaches us very emphatically that all the promises of God find their fulfillment in the Son, in Jesus Himself. Because He is the power and the wisdom of God. And all the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And so to be a Christian means that you believe the promises that God has made. He has never made a promise in all of the Bible that is not connected to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because every promise, remember, finds their fulfillment, their yes their Amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, for example, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, as I've just quoted, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why, Paul says, it is through Him that we utter our Amen. We agree with what Paul says, and it's to God and for His glory that we utter our Amen, our agreement, our assent to these wonderful truths. When I became a Christian, when you became a Christian, you believed the promises that were made by God to you. You believed that because Jesus died on the cross, you are forgiven. Because that's what God says. That's the fruit of the cross. That's the promise that God has made through what Jesus has done. But when God makes promises, because God is God and He's a covenant God, He can never break His promise. And as we know, of course, God can never lie and God never changes. Because if He could do both of those things, He would not be God. 
But because he does not change, and because he does not lie, therefore he keeps his word always, because it comes from who he is, so that you and I might be confident in what God has said, and believe what God has said. Now it's one thing to read about the promises, right? In the word, and to leave them on the page. That's of no value to you. The promises must be received, and the promises must be believed. And isn't that what believing is really all about, or what faith is all about? It is saying yes to the promises, to the word of God. It is giving your assent. Not your approval, but your assent, your belief, your receiving, your trust in the word that God has revealed to us. Agreeing with the word of God. I say those things because 500 years ago, of course, is the Reformation occurred. Tomorrow is October 31, Reformation Day, because on that day, Luther, of course, 1517, nailed his 95 theses to the castle door of the Wittenberg Church. 95 theses inviting anybody to debate, to discuss those theses, which were really a diatribe against the idolatry and the indulgences of the Roman Church at the time. Because Luther had come to understand that freedom was not by tradition, not by church power, and not by any person sitting on a throne in Rome, but that justification, being right with God, was through the righteousness of Christ, another righteousness, not Luther's righteousness, not his righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus, credited to his account. And is not that what all of us believe who are believers, that we are not righteous in and of ourselves, but we have received the benefit of an imputed righteousness credited to our account, imputed to us by the divine power of God because of the death of His Son. And we have received that. And we have come to believe that. And this is what the Reformation recovered. It recovered the truths that were, that were lost to many that were kept from many people. And so Luther and others, the reformers 500 years ago, brought back, as it were, beautiful gospel truths that we just take for granted. And we should never do so. Because we hear them so often. We read of them so often. The promises of God are simply what God has said. What God has spoken. And when we talk about what has God said, this is what God has said, the Scriptures. This is the written word of a spoken word by God and of a given word by God through the apostles, through the prophets in the Old Testament, confirmed in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ as the fulfilling of the word, who is the eternal word himself. And so we have these promises that pertain to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. When you believe, that's faith. That's trust. And in doing that, the Apostle Paul would say over and over again, when you believe what God has said is true, God gets the glory. God gets the glory. You get none. You deserve none. And that's right. We say no glory to ourselves, but all the glory to God. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when you read that about the differences between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God, what's the, the basic difference? The basic difference is that in the wisdom of man we get to boast. Look, look how smart I am. But when it comes to the wisdom of God, you don't get to boast. Because your wisdom is foolishness. And Paul works that wisdom of man and the wisdom of God back to the preaching of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. That's what we believe. We believe the Word, don't we? We believe the promises of God. We believe the Scriptures, what we have given to us here. And by the way, in the Scriptures, God has spoken, but He does something else. He reveals Himself. He shows us who He is, and He shows us Jesus and what Jesus was like. And so we come to understand the truths of the Christian faith only because the Word stands as its foundation, as its authority. And so we acknowledge that all that we have received then is not because of who we are, but because of God's grace to us. 
We receive this word, we receive these truths by the grace of God. At this time of year, you know, I like to think about the reformers. And I like to think about the Reformation. Because we stand in a heritage of reformed faith. And not only that, but when you think about the reformed ideas and what came out of the Reformation, which was light to a dark world at that time, we find ourselves living, don't we, in a dark world again, where the truths of the Word of God, the light that comes from the Word, is so desperately needed. How will it be declared? It's declared by you and by me as we live our lives. And this world is in such desperate need of light, isn't it? Because of the tragedy of the darkness that we live in. The reformers were not the people who came up with the five solas. It's important to understand that. But what they did was they all taught what we call the five solas. So I must tell you, what are the five solas? Very simple, right? So, sola scriptura. Scripture alone, because the word sola means only or alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's number one. Number two, solas Christus, Christ alone. Very easy, right? Number three, sola gratia, grace alone. Number four, sola fide, faith only, faith alone. And the last one, soli deo gloria, to God only be glory. Aren't those great truths? Now these are not the truths that the, the reformers wrote, said, okay, now here we go, sola one, sola two, sola. They didn't do that, but we discovered that these are the solas that uh, epitomize, reveal to us the doctrines that came out of the Reformation. In fact, I would suggest to you these truths are not just because of the Reformation, but all of them are in the Bible. Everywhere in the Bible. When God creates uh, Adam and Eve, He really is asking Adam and Eve to trust Him, isn't He? Here's my word, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's my word, because here's my promise. The day you eat of it is the day you die. They didn't believe the promise. They didn't believe the word. And what happened to them? They died spiritually. And they plunged, Adam plunged all of humanity because he stood as, their fe as our federal head. All of us descended from him or plunged into ruin. That's why we sin naturally. Because of Adam. Because Adam did not believe the promises of God. He despised the word. But if you were to believe, God's word. Like, for instance, Abel comes to sacrifice to God with a lamb for his sacrifice. Where did he get the idea that he must sacrifice blood, that he must shed blood? He got it from Adam, who got it from God, about this is how you come to me. So he comes to God in faith, with the right sacrifice. His brother Cain, of course, comes with the very best vegetables, very best products of the ground, and God says, no. Because that's not what I command and not what I want. I want bloodshed for sin. And Cain is really saying, I don't believe your word. I don't believe what you say. Here's, here's the best I have. It's the very best. Look at it. God says, no thanks. Ultimately, this is what it all comes down to right now, this morning. Do you believe, truly, the promises of God? The word of God. So, sola scriptura, solas Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, soli deo gloria. I want to show you those truths here. Romans 9, Romans 10, primarily. Each of them, the five solas, are directed to the opposite. So you have to think a little bit, what do you mean, Russ? Because what they're doing is pointing out what's on the other side. So, sola scriptura, because it means scripture only, means nothing else. Tradition, church, ideas that you've come up with, philosophies of men. No, nothing on the other side. Just scripture only, right? Sola Scriptura. So all the opposites, of course, during the Reformation were in vogue. The Roman Catholic doctrine was not just Sola Scriptura, but Scriptura and tradition and church and Pope. Right? So, Scripture plus. Scripture plus. 
And the reformers come along and they say, no, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches Scripture only as our authority because the Scripture is from God alone. Inspired and so on. Given to us. One of the things I think we've forgotten today is that the Reformation is called really the Protestant Reformation. What do we mean by Protestant? Well, we mean a protest. That's what they meant, a protest against the traditions of the church, the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And by the way, we would protest anything that is against Scripture and against the authoritative Word of God. We have forgotten what it means to be Protestant. To be Protestant today simply means I'm not Roman Catholic. But that's not what Protestantism is all about. Because Protestantism is asserting the fundamental doctrines that it is God alone who saves us by faith, by grace, according to His Word, for His own glory. That's it. And those are the truths that, that must challenge us and must, we must rejoice in them when we come to face them and read them. In fact, the five solas are not all there is about Reformation teaching at all. They are just a summary of the theology that was developed at that time and come, came to be proclaimed. But the thing about them is that they all point to the centrality of God and to the centrality of the gospel, and the gospel is none other than Jesus, so they all point to the centrality of Christ, and by Christ I mean His person, who He is, and His work, what He has done. You cannot have Jesus and not His work. And you can never have His work without who He is. We must never forget that. In fact, in the early church, in the, church, in the centuries after the early church with the church fathers, they went to great lengths to talk about who Jesus was. Jesus is, as we confess, fully God and fully man. Right? He is the God-man. It's a mystery to us. It's beyond our comprehension and understanding. But we confess it and we believe it because the Bible... And only the Bible says it. Not my philosophy. Not my, my uh, understanding of the laws of non-contradiction or the laws of contradiction or however you want to phrase it. No, just because God said it. I believe it. Right? And that's all faith is. God said it. I believe God. I don't believe man. I believe God. So, how can I know these things to be so? And what of them are truly mine. And can I know what is mine and what has been done for it? And ultimately, what is the great end of all of these things? Why have they happened? And why are they there? So let's just take the word for a moment. Begin with Scripture, right? Every Christian, in my opinion, must have read, and if not, should start immediately and read their Bible through at least once. A year. Not once in your lifetime, but at least once a year. Now think about that for a moment. That if you read your Bible once a year and you have 30 more years to live, or 50 more years to live, or at least one more year, you've read through God's Word time and time and time again. Make that a goal, by the way. Because look, what you have in your hands is nothing less than what God has said to you. Why would you not read it? Or to put it another way, why would you not devour it constantly? Like the psalmist says, that in the law of God I meditate day and night. I saturate my mind and my heart with Scripture, with the promises of God, with the words of God, what God has said. I believe those. Now you know, here's the thing about the Bible, right? You would know nothing at all unless it was revealed to you by God. I mean, imagine if you didn't have your Bible. Or imagine if the Bible was locked away in a forbidden book. How would you know what was in the book? How would you know what God had said? The only way you know what God has said is because you read what God has said, because God has said it, and you discover it to be true. And the thing about sola scriptura, it became, for the Reformers, the formal principle of the Reformation. They built their entire lives, let alone their theology, on the Bible. And that means when you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to the grocery store, 
when you deposit your money in the bank, you think biblically about all matters because you bring every subject, this is what the reformers desired, you bring every subject, secular, whatever you do, sport, you bring everything to the word. What glorifies God and what doesn't? And what doesn't, not interested in, but what does, I'm interested in big time. So, sola scriptura is our only authority, scripture, the Bible, because it is God's word. It's not the church and what the church says. It's not the traditions of the church that are plethora all around us, so many of them. It's not that. And it's certainly not by a man sitting somewhere in an earthly prestigious, whether it's Roman Catholic or Protestant or Greek Orthodox or whatever, or Celtic. It's none of that, right? It's not by any human being, this authority that we have, that we believe. Because this is the word from God, revealed to us only by God and by His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture. That's why we confess, don't we, these glorious truths like Scripture is inspired of God. Scripture is inerrant. Scripture is infallible. We mean by all of that that there are no mistakes in the Word, that the Word is completely reliable and trustworthy, and it comes only from the mouth of God Himself. And yes, Moses wrote, and David wrote, and Jeremiah wrote, and Peter wrote, and Paul wrote. They were instruments in the hand of God. And though all of their personalities are invested in their writing, yet what they wrote are the very words that God intended for them to write. And so we have the word of God. We don't have the word of Paul, or the word of Peter, but the word of Christ, of God himself. So the Bible is our only authority. Now let me show you that. So look at chapter 10. Look at verse 8, for example. What does it say? The Word is near you. The Word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. Not on your bedside table. Not on your living room table but in your mouth. You're digesting it. You're ruminating on the words. You're, you're thinking about the words in your heart, receiving them, right? You're mashing them over. You're, you're putting them in your mind and in your heart. You're thinking about the word. It's near you. How much closer can the word be than in your mouth and on your heart? You have it, God, Paul says. It's so near to you. And he calls this word, you'll notice at the end of verse 8, that is... The word of faith that we proclaim. The word of faith that we proclaim. Which in verse 17, of course, faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. So the word of faith that we proclaim, the word that is near you, is none other than the word of Christ himself. Notice verse 15, by the way. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, what is the good news? That's the gospel, right? That's not what I've come up with or any other preacher has come up with. Well, this sounds good and I'll give that on Sunday. No, the truth from the word of God, right? So the good news, which you look at verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So now, the word is near you. The word of faith that we proclaim the word of Christ, which is the good news, which is the gospel. He's talking about the same word. No difference, right? And what is all important about this is that it concerns the truth. And the source of that truth. And I've already hinted to you, right? The source of the truth that we receive and believe is not the church. And it's not our traditions. That's not the source of our truth. And worst of all, dear congregation... Because this is very relevant today. Worst of all, the truth is not your experience. Okay? The truth is only the truth because it's God's truth. Right? So, there is no such thing as your truth. Now, I don't know how many times I've started hearing that kind of phrase, right? It's your truth. Belongs to you only. No, the truth only belongs to God 
and the truth is God. In fact, your truth, whatever that is, is nothing but your experience. And let me tell you, your experience does not and has not and never will ever give me this word. In fact, I don't trust your experience. You know why? Because I don't trust mine. Okay? I trust the word of God. Or to put it another way, on what basis is your experience authoritative? If you call it your truth. Why should your experience dictate your truth, supposedly, to other people who have their truth? Cannot do it. No, there's only one authoritative truth. That truth is God's truth because it resides in God and it has come from God. He has shown it. He has revealed it to us. Now, if you don't start with the Bible, I mean, if you're not a Christian and you don't start with the Bible, then how are you going to know about God? In fact, many people have started without the Bible, don't need the Bible, they say, and yet will tell you confidently about God. I'll tell you one thing, it's not the God of the Bible. It's their God. Whoever or whatever that may be, it's not the God of the Bible, because to know the God of the Bible, I need His Word, I need His revelation to me. He shows me, He tells me the truth about Himself. And as important as it is to know the truth about God, isn't it even as important in some sense to know the truth about yourself? And the only person who can reveal the truth about yourself is none other than God Himself. I mean, if you don't trust yourself or your experiences, because by the way they change, and you've changed your mind about many things many times, so how reliable are you really? Well, you're totally unreliable. And I'm totally unreliable. But God is reliable because God's word is the truth and he never changes. I can trust him. I can believe his word. I can take it for what God says it is. And when I want to know something, how do I know anything? I know it because God says it. That's all. I know it because God says it. By the way, if you were to recognize a a mathematical truth, for example, 2 plus 2 is 5. Oh, sorry. Four. You see, you know what two plus two is. Two plus two is four. Now I say God knows what two plus two is also. God says it's not five, it's two, because there are principles that apply that are grounded ultimately in God Himself. And not only that, but I recognize, yes, there may be depths to two plus two that I don't know. That may be true. But I do know that 2 plus 2 is 4, just like God knows 2 plus 2 is 4, and not 5 or 6 or 7 or 8. These truths apply to all things. God's truth stands behind everything in this world. So now, here's here's Moses so long ago, right? And look at verse 5 of chapter 10. So here's Moses, and, and he's writing, and Paul quotes him. So, look what verse 5 says. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Now, we just stop there for a moment. What does he mean? He means that the law is righteous and that the law conveys a righteous standard. That's all he means, right? Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. What is the righteousness based on the law? Look what he says. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's all, right? So, when, when Paul writes that from Moses, he's actually quoting Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which says this, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So, what is it, what's Paul say? He said, Moses says, look, here's the law. If you keep it, you're righteous. If you keep it, you're righteous. Now, if you could keep it yourself, you would be righteous. But here's the thing. None of us can keep God's law. Yes, God's law is God's righteous standard. There it is. If you keep the law, God says, you're righteous. I would justify you on your obedience to that law. But you can't obey it. Neither can I. None of us can. We're not justified, therefore, by the law, are we? Because all of us are lawbreakers. We have not kept the law. So, because it cannot be done, look at verse 4 of chapter 10. For Christ is the 
end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's one of the great verses of the Bible. You cannot be righteous by the law because you cannot obey the law and you cannot keep the law. And because you cannot obey the law and keep the law, you can never be righteous. But here, suddenly Paul says, but Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness that's based on the law, which you can never have, but Jesus is the end of that to everyone who believes. Which opens the door, doesn't it, to the fact that I can, I can actually be righteous somehow, but it's not by the law, but it's connected to Christ. He's the end of a legal righteousness, so there must be another righteousness way by which I can be accepted by God, right? So Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. The question is, why is Jesus the end of the law for righteousness? Because he's the only one who kept it. He's the only one who kept the law for you and for me. And notice how verse 13 puts it. For everyone who believes. Who believes. What is this? Paul's hinting, isn't he, again, at justification by faith. Because justification is all about an imputation of righteousness. How do you get this imputation of righteousness from God to yourself? By faith. We are justified by faith. This is what Luther discovered 500 years ago. It was like a light bulb went on, right? In his little monk cell where he's flagellating himself with his whips, trying to please God. How can I be right with God? He's beating himself up. He's, he's not eating. He's fasting. and he's, he's like skin and bones. He's on death's door. Suddenly the gospel shines from Scripture. The just live by faith. Not by law. Not by works. But only by believing. Believing what? Believing the good news. Believing the gospel. Believing the word of Christ. Believing Christ. Having Christ. That's the gospel, right? That's why Luther said justification is the chief article of Christianity. Our salvation is never by works, right? I want to show you that. If you turn back to Romans 3, look at verse 20 of Romans chapter 3. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, his sight. Let me just say it again. For by works of the law, doing what the law says, no human being will be justified in his sight. Because you see, the purpose of the law is never to justify. Look what the purpose is. Since through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. So what's the purpose of God's law? To show us that we're sinners. That's all. That's all. It's God's law that proves that every single one of us is a sinner because we have broken His law. And when you try to do the works of the law, you can never be right with God by doing them because you instead you are condemned by the law because you've broken it. And if you've broken it once, James says, and Paul says, you're guilty of it all and you stand condemned. So, through the law comes the knowledge of, of sin. Now, it's so important to understand this brothers and sisters. Just look for a moment at, at verse 10 of chapter 3. Verse 10 of chapter 3. As it is written, Scripture, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, if you came here this morning and you think you have some righteousness, God says, sorry, there is no one righteous. None. Look how he puts it. No, not one. Verse 11. No one understands and no one seeks for God. Well, that's pretty condemning, isn't it? No one is righteous. Emphasis, no, not one. And no one even understands and no one seeks for God. So now here's the question that needs answering, right? If we are void of all righteousness, there is no one righteous. If we are void of all righteousness, how can we ever do any good works? Because where do good works come from? Righteousness. 
Isn't that the good works that we're expected to do would be the righteous standard of God? But if you are void of righteousness, you can never do good works. So how could you ever be saved by works? It's impossible. can't be done. And yet how many believe faith plus works saves me? No, I'm not justified by faith plus works, I'm justified by faith. But guess what? If I am justified by faith, my works will prove that I was really justified, that I am right with God. So, good works, which can only be through righteousness and are righteous in and of themselves, cannot be from me because I am not righteous. In fact, since good works have been created from before the foundation of the world for those who have been born again, Ephesians 2.10, that even the good works that we do are given by us to God, that they are because of Christ, that all that we do are accepted because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. Because everything I do is touched by sin. Thank God for Christ, right? Solus Christus, Christ only. So justification simply means to possess the righteousness of Christ. Credited to my account. Well, how does that happen? It happens at the cross when you believe. And there's a great transaction that happens when you believe the gospel, right? My sins go to Jesus and His righteousness comes to me, imputed to me. My sins imputed to Jesus, His righteousness imputed to me. That's the transaction of Calvary. That's the good news of the cross, right? So, here we are then. Since justification is this imputation of the righteousness of Jesus and it only comes to me by faith, that is, by believing the gospel, it comes to me by having Christ. Do you have Christ? That's the issue. Having Christ. You see, according to chapter 3 and verse 22, God's righteousness is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God, this is chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Again, another question. Do you believe? Do you believe? So God's righteousness for all who believe is only through faith in Christ. So now, when we look at this passage here, look at, look at chapter 9 for a moment and verse 30. So Paul says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not exceed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Isn't that what Jesus discovered, by the way, in the first century with all the Pharisees? They're all trying their works and their tradition. Their way of being righteous before God. And what they were doing was just laying burdens on ordinary people because those ordinary people like you and me could never keep the law. In fact, we are condemned by the law because we find, okay, that's the standard. I'll try and keep the standard and then I break it. Now what? Totally guilty. Always. But here, the promise is, you never get that by works. You only get and receive the righteousness of Christ by faith, by believing. And notice, in chapter 10, verse 3, you cannot establish your own righteousness, because look at the Israel, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So you cannot come up with your own righteous standard and say, that's good enough, I'm a good person. How many times do you hear people say, I'm a good person? Or, because they've died, other people will say, well, they were such a good person. Therefore, I'm sure they're looking down from above. Really? What kind of theology is that? It's not biblical. That's man's theology, right? In fact, today, maybe my dogs and my cats are looking down, right? It's not biblical theology, right? No, the real issue is, how can you be saved? How can I be saved, right? So look at chapter 10, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith, not the righteousness based on the law or the works of the law, but the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who's going to go to heaven to bring Christ down, who's going to descend to the abyss to bring Christ up. No, what does it say? The word is near you. 
in your mouth, in your heart. And what is this word of faith that we proclaim? Here it is, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. By the way, where do you get the idea that Jesus is Lord? The Scriptures. Proving over and over again that Christ is Lord. God Himself. God the Son. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, verse 9, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now He explains it. Look at verse 10. For with the heart you believe and are justified and with the mouth you confess and are saved. For the Scripture says, look at verse 11, the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. You see, God is asking us to believe Him. His scripture, His word, what is written, and therefore we will be saved. So God has revealed the way of salvation in the word, which He calls the proclaiming of the word of faith, verse 8, which requires always your confession by your mouth, verse 9, and always requires believing in your heart, so confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what is the result? Verse 10, you'll be justified and you'll be saved. But you have to hear that word, right? That's verses 14 through 17, isn't it, of chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So how are all these Romans and Galatians and Corinthians and Sarasotans how are they all to believe, right, this good news? How are they going to call on Him in whom they've never believed? Well, how are they going to believe unless they hear, right? So you've got to have hearing. And how are they going to hear unless someone tells them, is preaching, right? And how is someone to preach unless God sends them to preach this word? Look, as it is written, Scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But the sad thing is, look at the next verse, 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's Israel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Because they tried to be righteous by their works, and they can never do that. That's why verse 17 says, so faith, how does faith come to you? From hearing the word and the word of Christ. So, God sends faith, sends forth His Word by His Spirit into our hearts, and we believe, because He opens up for us our hearts. He softens them. So I discover then that salvation is by faith alone. Right? That's how I'm justified. Do I believe? Not faith plus, not faith plus, just faith. Just believing the good news, just believing the Word which is near you, in your mouth, in your heart, verse 8. Believe in what word near you? The word that has been proclaimed. The word that is preached. The foolishness of the cross. Now you see, these are such important questions, even for a believer, right? Precious questions. How can I be right with God? By receiving the righteousness of Christ, by faith. How can I know whether God will receive me? Jesus did it all. Did it all. God says, my son has done all the work you need. Don't look elsewhere. Don't believe the philosophies of men, the wisdom of men. Believe my word, what I say about my son. Believe what has been revealed. Look at verse 13. Everyone then who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So now if you want to be a descendant of a reformer, okay, which you are, of course, which we are, Okay? Just look at what we know so far. Salvation is by Jesus only. Right? It's not Jesus and Buddha. Jesus only. And it's by faith alone as revealed in the Scripture which you must hear. The Scripture alone. Notice particularly, it's the word of Christ, not the word of Confucius or the word of Karl Marx or whoever it is. The word of Jesus only is how faith comes. Faith alone justifies. Not faith plus, but faith only. Now, you know, that's wonderful. But there's more to come, isn't there? 
I mean, look at verse 12 of chapter 10. So Paul says, for, if, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So in other words, we're all the same. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. What is all that? That's grace. Bestowing, giving His riches on everyone who calls on Him. Right? That's grace. You see that word bestowing means to be generous. It means to lavish with kindness all those who call on the name of Christ. Lavish what? The riches of His grace. His riches upon us. What is grace? Grace is, as you know, undeserved favor. You don't deserve it. So if you go back to Romans 3.24, Romans 3.24 says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift. So grace is a gift. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now look, if you want to be right with God without the redemption of Jesus, it cannot be done. So if you say, well, I don't need the cross... Or the cross is not Jesus bearing the wrath of God against my sin for me. If you say, well, the cross, well, that's just Jesus. It happened to him. Uh, you know, there are many theologians, by the way, who believe that Jesus dying on the cross was because he did not accomplish what he intended really to accomplish and was caught by surprise. Jesus was not caught by surprise. It was the purpose of God that his son die on Calvary and Jesus himself knew it. That's why he came. And so, Jesus, of course, just dying on the cross, Paul says that redemption that is in Christ, you can only receive through grace as a gift. We're justified by grace as a gift. So God's grace comes to you and to me through Jesus' death on Calvary. So much so that Paul says in the epistle to the Romans, the abundance of God's grace and the free gift of righteousness, listen to that, the outpouring lavishly of the abundance of God's grace and the free gift of God's righteousness is through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because through the other one man, Adam, came what? Death. Death. But through this man comes life. And not just any life, but everlasting, eternal life. So Augustine could put it like this, that the grace of God does not find us fit for salvation, but it makes us so. It makes us so. I love that, what John Newton, you know John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace? We sing it, right? The world sings it. They have no idea what they're singing about. But this is what Newton says. He says, I am not what I might be, and I am not what I ought to be, and I am not what I wish to be, and I am not what I hope to be, but thank God I am not what I once was. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the work of God. That's not Newton, who was a slave trader, living a dissolute life, saying, well, I've reformed myself and I'm worthy. No, nothing like that. I'm a sinner saved by so you see, grace can never be earned. Grace can never be merited. It's just given. It's a gift to you. Grace is always free. Always. So Ephesians 2.8 is right, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's right. Faith and grace are not your own doing. They are the gift of God. But why is it not of works? Because if it were of works, you'd be boasting about it all the time. Now, you know, some of us boast about some things, right? We love to talk about ourselves or our accomplishments and all that, but this is one thing you can never boast in, that you saved yourself. Or even that you contributed a particle to your salvation. No? Because if you did, grace is not a gift. No, grace is a gift. You don't deserve it. You deserve wrath. So when we put that all together, right, can we not step back and say, Soli Deo Gloria, to God only be the glory. For such a salvation, for such a Son, for such a Savior, 
Notice chapter 10, verse 12. The same Lord is Lord of all. Lord of all. Do you know that Jesus is Lord whether you believe he's Lord or not? He's Lord, right? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? Lord to the glory of the Father, right? By the way, God forbid that any of us should ever get any praise for our salvation. God forbid. Any glory. No, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his what? Son. So now you know, right, that our Lord is the only means of saving us. He's the only Savior. He saves by grace. He forgives our sins. He, he brings us to the Father. Then the Father receives us because we're in His Son. God has done all this work, this transaction at the cross of my sins to Jesus and His righteousness to my account. So now I can approach God because I'm in Christ. I can come to God. God has done everything that's needed. So Jesus says in his word, because faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, Jesus says, why don't you call on me? Why don't you believe this word? Right? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So these are the truths that the Reformation broke open and unfolded again in a time of darkness, pagan darkness, spiritual darkness. And as I said at the beginning, isn't that where we're living ourselves? 500 years later, here we find ourselves living in darkness again. And the rallying call out of the Reformation was, as you know in the Latin phrase, post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. There is always light after darkness. Isn't there? Thank God the sun comes up every morning and dispels the darkness, right? There's always light. And it's the light that removes the darkness. What are you going to do to dispel the darkness? Because you are light in Christ. And just being a Christian is sufficient to dispel the darkness that is in our world. We need the gospel, which is the gospel of light, that gives us light, that shines as light. We need to shine. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. So go and shine for me, right? Ah, uh, you know, when I look at these truths, they're such simple truths, really. But they're precious, aren't they? You know why? Because God said them. God says, this is my way. Look at it. Can you find any fault with it? No, you can't. It's beautiful. Why would we not receive in our hearts, in our minds, on our lips, this glorious gospel? So I discover then, I need Jesus Christ. But there's something else. I must have Jesus Christ. And that's the issue. I know you need Christ. But do you have Christ? Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you for these great truths that your word makes so plain to us. Forgive us, Father, that if we have allowed things to get in the way of this gospel, our business activities, our private habits or ambitions or sports or whatever it might be. Instead, we desire to wrap our lives around the gospel only that we might live in the light of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which shines uh, to us in the face of our Savior, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for that we remind ourselves at these times of these glorious truths. May they become ever precious to us. Thank you above all, Father, that you have given us your word. You have revealed yourself and you have told the truth about ourselves. And you've shown us how we can be right with you. We praise you for that. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cross, which is to us who are being saved, the wisdom and the power of God. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and what he has done for us. Help us to believe always these truths. Help us to latch hold of Christ himself and to have him and to possess him forever. Help us to live lives that are light in this dark world. 
to be your disciples. So thank you now. We pray and ask that the Spirit of God would take these things and place them in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.